Hi, I'm Piper. And I'm Erin. Welcome to Off the Tracks Podcast, where we explore what it means to do law differently. Today, we are joined by Krista James. Krista is a lawyer, writer, feminist, and community organizer. Krista most recently served 12 years as the National Director of the Canadian Centre for Elder Law before starting a new role in January 2023 as a Policy Director at Vancouver Coastal Health. Krista, we are so grateful you've joined us today, and we are so excited to hear about all of the twists and turns and triumphs throughout your career. We always love to hear from our guests themselves a little bit about how your career has evolved over time. Yeah, so just in broad strokes, how my career has evolved? Yeah, definitely. So sort of, you know, how you've connected the dots to get to where you are today. Yeah, well... Sure. So the the highlights of the journey, I would say, is, um, you know, I started out as a kind of student activist doing community work in my undergrad, and I I went to law school in the mid-90s. I worked, I I was one of those, the few students who articled with the legal aid system, and then I worked as a community advocate and victim assistance worker for a few years. Uh, After that, I worked for a few years at a trade union side labor law office, mostly representing health professionals on human rights and disability related issues. Then I took a huge detour and went to art school for about four years and did most of a BFA. And then I went, joined the British Columbia Law Institute and the Canadian Center for Elder Law. And that's where I was for 15 years now before I I joined Coastal Health this year. Okay, wow. Like there's just so much there, Krista. I'm so curious, how did you detour into art school? Because I believe you went to the Emily Carr University of Art and Design. And then what led you out of art school in terms of, you know, completing most of the degree, but not entirely uh, completing it? Yeah, in some ways, they were both completely accidental, the beginning and the ending, which is what I often say to women when they're planning their careers is you can only plan so much. And then sometimes kind of seizing on the unexpected is where kind of the magic happens. But, you know, I was practicing law full time. I had a bit of an injury, just an overuse injury from, you know, sports and fitness. And I went to part time and it just, you know, this is around 2000. The part-time in a law practice was not really well received. It, it was it was challenging to um, get to a place where all the lawyers understood that I could deliver a lot on a part-time basis, and it just wasn't working. So I decided to leave and just take some time to be not practicing law. And um, I went non-practicing and everything, and and then I was just bored and I wanted to do something with my time and I'd always wanted to study art it was when I was in my teens it was a bit of a the decision had always been do I go down the law path or go down the art path and I always saw them as fully distinct paths and I chose the law path in part because it felt like I could do more good in the world and it was a more practical choice career-wise but the art door was always the door that kind of was never fully closed so I just decided to go to art school. Originally, I just took a course in their continuing development program. Then I applied for their foundation program, which is kind of the entry year to general fine arts. And I got in, I I submitted a portfolio, started part-time, and I just loved it so much that I eventually switched to 
you know, full-time art school. And um, I had to choose uh, a full focus because usually like with, you know, an arts degree, you choose a focus. And I opted for film and video and integrated media and performance art. And I said, I loved it. I was very close to finishing when I left. I really just needed to come up with a grad project and produce it. Um, you know, partly it felt like time and then I was pregnant and I just, you know, I had, I had spent all my everything and I had, you know, um, student loans once again, you know, I had nothing saved up and I just needed a kind of more grown up, serious full-time job if I was going to be a mom. So I made the switch. Yeah. And, um, have you ever considered sort of going back and finishing that program or does it yeah, leave I its have, your life? <laughs> you know, I have a funny, I, when I left, I had scholarships. It was like finally at that point where, you know, it was almost more financially viable to the art school path. But, you know, I was finding at the Canadian Center for Elder Law that I was able to do creative work, a lot of collaborative work with people working in film and video and art and you know, I'd probably done a grad project three times over, over the years. Um, and I, I didn't feel like I could kind of leave work and focus on being a full-time student. Again, I had a kid and, you know, increasingly it's felt like the, um, the savings for university are for her, not for me. And I even, I did consider when I was thinking recently, what do I do next? Do I go back to school? And I honestly felt like I could do more, something more useful by doing a PhD in another area rather than completing yet another kind of bachelor's. Um, but again, the money for, the money for um, university right now is, is earmarked for my daughter. <laughs> it's not my turn. And it might be my turn someday. But what I love about school and what I've loved about all the time I've gone to school is that you kind of immerse yourself in a community of practice and you are really kind of, like, I love that juicy nine to five. I'm just studying and learning and collaborating and making and just finishing is not a juicy joy for me. It's, it's that being part of the creative community. And if I went back for a year just to do a grad project, I would be a bit of an interloper. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be developing a community practice in the same way. And it, it wouldn't feel meaningful. It would just be a box that I was ticking and a shift to my, you know, my CV, you know, I, I don't feel the need at this point. Yeah. That's a really interesting lesson too, of like not feeling the need to just complete something just to tick it off a box or just to quote unquote finish and you can still take a lot of joy and learn so much just throughout the process and I feel like sometimes we have a big focus on you know getting to certain milestones or completing something or sticking with something just because we've started and so I really like that you sort of were like you know I got what I needed from it life changes baby comes you gotta <laughs> think on your feet and switch things up and so um you, you changed it up. And so we would love to know a bit more about what being the national director of the Canadian Centre for Elder Law entailed and what sort of role you played. Were you mostly in management? Were you practicing? Did that evolve over time? 
and sort of everything to do with, with the, you know, this big chunk of your career? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when I started at the Canadian Centre for Elder Law, um, I was the, the second national director and the division hadn't really been around that long. And when they hired me, I think it was because they wanted me to support them to take both the BC Law Institute and the Canadian Centre for Elder Law a little more out of the ivory tower and do kind of more community-engaged law reform and legal research. And so part what that meant when I became the national director a few years later was that I was invited in to help change the organization. And so I wasn't kind of jumping into a box that had to be filled. I was kind of creating the role as time went on. And it really, just like the role evolved and the organization evolved. Um, but it, we are small. Although the BC Law Institute was a very small organization and the CCL grew to be about half of its work, but it's still half of a, a very tiny nonprofit with, I think, usually like five to six permanent staff. And then for CCL, because we were always getting projects, hiring consultants and um, contract staff to fill out the team and allow us to do a lot of the interdisciplinary work that we wanted to do. So you know, never more than like 12 or 13 people so as national director, I was doing a lot of different things. So some of it was the more behind the scenes work of writing and creating, you know, writing long study papers and reports, usually leveraging research someone else did, but sometimes doing my own research. And then kind of balancing all that kind of hiding and writing and creating with collaboration and community engagement, a lot of outreach and collaborating with different organizations, consulting with seniors about what their needs were and how they experienced law reform. And then um, another piece of it was the kind of visioning for the organization. So strategic thinking and uh, fundraising, grant writing, project development. Um, it was kind of an everything sort of job. <laughs> I think that's true with a lot of nonprofit kind of leadership positions is you, kind of have to do everything. And then hiring and supporting long-term and short-term staff. We were always kind of growing and shrinking to support different projects that we had and collaborating with those people. So, you know, I usually have legal researchers, often law students. I work with videographers and designers and artists and illustrators um, to create some of the kind of interesting creative stuff that we were doing. So that kind of, you know, I don't want to call it HR because I don't like thinking about people as resources, but more like supporting the team, really. Okay, first of all, I love what you just said about HR. That's so fascinating. I've never heard it like phrased that way and I've never thought of it that way. And now I'm just going to be sitting here all day thinking about what HR means. But beyond that, I was wondering, Krista, if you could explain a little bit of, you know, the mandate for the Canadian Center for Elder Law. Like I'm sure it evolved a lot over time, but did you do, did you do like a lot of intervener work, like public legal education work? Um, what, what's sort of like the organization's goals as they've evolved? Yeah, that's a really good question. And because we were part of the British Columbia Law Institute, which was BC's nonprofit law reform agency, we we're definitely not an advocacy agency or I shouldn't even say we're an agency because we're like a division of the 
BC Law Institute, but the work kind of operated on a parallel path and didn't over, you know, overlap too much. It kind of felt sometimes like we were a little bit separate, but we were still part of the BCLI. So neutral, independent law reform work was a part of our work. We, as time went on, we were increasingly doing more and more public legal education work on top of the law reform work and um, legal research. So uh, writing um, study papers on legal issues that matter to older people that weren't always part of a law reform initiative. Like a law reform initiatives are massive multi-year initiatives that involve collaboration and creation with experts and people in community. And they take a long time. And sometimes um, we do we do more discrete research projects. And so for example, um, last fall we published a study paper on oversight of the work of unregulated healthcare assistance in BC. So these are all the people who go into people's homes or work in long-term care and provide support and care to older people who are not a regulated group, but are doing like 95% of the hands-on care. So we did a, a study paper. We didn't make law reform recommendations because we would always do that in collaboration. And so sometimes study papers are the first step to law reform, kind of the research foundation that identifies where you could possibly go next. Um, and sometimes they're just like a juicy deep dive in a, an important area of work. So it's a mix of law reform, kind of legal research and policy analysis, and then education. And then I would say layered on top of that is a lot of community engagement work, like which is kind of helping people to understand the law, but also talking to them about their experience of the law so that there's always this kind of circle where what we did was really informed by what community would say are the barriers to quality of life for seniors. That's such important work, Krista. And, you know, it's so interesting. Anyone that's ever worked at a nonprofit knows that you always have to wear so many hats and the goals are constantly evolving and like how important community engagement is and in informing the organization's like mission and evolving vision. And so I think that that's, um, you've really given like a great overview of, I mean, I know you spent about 12 years there, so I'm sure that you could talk for so long about all of the important work that you did, but we also know that in January 2023, you, so just about five milliseconds ago, you started as the policy director at Vancouver Coastal Health. And so we're so curious about like how you decided to make such a big change after such a significant amount of time in your career was spent with one organization. And we'd love to hear a bit more about the role knowing that you just, you just started. Yeah, it was a big decision. I, I did think about it for, you know, for a while. It was a really good experience to think about what I love and don't love about my work and whether it was the perfect enough fit or not. And I, you know, the, ultimately the reason why I started thinking about leaving was that increasingly I felt there was a lack of alignment with what the CCL was doing and maybe the overall ideology of the British Columbia Law Institute, which you know, legal institutions are conservative and um, law reform agencies, although they work toward change in the law, they're pretty conservative um, institutions. You know, when I first started at the BC Law Institute and the CCL, I was jokingly referred to as our social justice lawyer, or I get, oh, that's the social justice perspective from Krista. And um, 
gradually, like I shifted the CCL a little and found space for to do work that I was excited about, but there was always a bit of a squaring the circle and living in that space. Um, and we had some new leadership and the, it shifted further. And I just felt like there was not enough harmony between what mattered to me and what I wanted to do and what, where the direction the organization might be going next. And, um, and I think that sort of HR piece was a piece of it too, that I felt like the way the organization was able to, was supporting staff or not supporting staff just didn't align with the way I felt about how, how we treat our people. And I, it was not working for me. And so it was kind of time to think about what to do next. And that was a great opportunity to really think about what I loved and what aligned and what I didn't want to do, particularly because I had a Jane of all trades job where it was like I was doing everything from fundraising to writing papers. And so I did some, you know, thinking about what I wanted, didn't want to do anymore, what I wanted to do more of. And, you know, health policy came up because so many of the exciting issues that are relevant to seniors' rights and um, that intersection between human rights law and elder law had to do with access to um, quality care. And a lot of those issues have really come to a fore during the pandemic as well. And on top of that, what I noticed from all of our law reform projects related to um, seniors' rights was that there was a reoccurring theme of the laws are okay-ish. Here are some ways we can tweak the law to make it better. But where the rubber really hits the road is when we apply those laws in practice. And what we need more of is the people applying the laws need to understand them better. And we need policy support in institutions so they can really give life to these laws in a meaningful and juicy way. And so, you know, I was feeling more like health and policy where were the next place where I could really support kind of system change and there was an interesting moment with my ED where she said, I'm starting to feel like, you know, I feel like maybe the Canadian Center for Elder Law does too much policy and should be doing more law reform. And I thought, huh, I want to do the policy. <laughs> so I started, you know, I know that wasn't her intention to push me out the door, but she helped plant those seeds of what I might kind of do next and I started thinking more about policy and health and um, at that moment you know Vancouver Coastal Health which is you know one of the largest you know health providers in Canada was thinking about how they could grow their policy um, capacity to really support best practice and um, so there was some luck there the, the time that they were wanting to to um, grow and they needed some leadership to help them kind of grow and, and kind of revision for themselves how meaningful policy work can be within health organizations. So again, yeah. there's like a bit of kind of unexpected and happenstance that kind of forces you to ask um, deep questions. And I would do a shout out to another podcast I was listening to by Paula Price. It's called, you know, Joyful Lawyer or something. Yes. She had mm -hmm. quite a few podcasts where she talks about alignment and how to think about aligning what you do with who you are. And I found some of those interviews really helpful to me in sort of probing those deep questions. So 
That's amazing. We love uh, Paula's work and I had the opportunity to meet her virtually um, in my job. And so, um, yes, all of like those conversations she has with people about finding like alignment in their career are, are just so important. And, and um, it's really special to like be able to find that for yourself. And you talk about like, you just spoke about knowing what you really like and what you're good at and knowing what you don't like. And it sounds like you've found a lot of that in this new role. It is, I will say, like for lawyers out there who are thinking about what they want to do with their lives, like, like I think it is, it is important to be true to yourself, but kind of the mid-career legal shift is so different from the early career legal shifts. Like I felt like when I was thinking about what to do next, what I had to offer was really clear to me. And I didn't feel like there was any performance or um, grasping or faking when I talk to people about potential work, I, I, I knew what I wanted to do and I was looking for fit to not just the subject matter alignment, but that kind of real culture fit and values fit that um, I think helps us to just feel good every day in our work, right? It's not just what we do, it's who we do the work with and, and the vibe of, you know, that culture. Yeah, I really love that. And um, just thinking of the alignment and doing stuff that you love, I have this mug that I've had since before I went to law school. Um, I was working at Banana Republic and my coworkers got me this mug that said, let what you do be what you love. And I just love that mug. And I always, whenever I, like, whenever I'm feeling like, Ah, what am I doing? <laughs> I pick out that mug and I just think to myself like, okay, um, what I'm, I am what I'm doing right now. Is that in line with what I want to be doing? Is this what I love to do? And I think that that's really cool that you were able to have a moment of clarity and think, you know what? Hey, actually policy work is actually what I really want to be doing. And where can I do that? And who do I want to be doing it with? And just having more clarity as you go throughout your career, because I feel like when you're in the beginning of your career in law school, you're just like, okay, I want to get into law. You're so eager and you're, you're just sort of eager to take opportunities because you're not quite sure maybe where you want to land yet. But I think that's really neat when you're, you know, going through your career and you have more experiences and more different opportunities that you can then hone in and say, you know what, this is actually exactly what I want to do. I know that I'm good at this and I, this is where I want to work when this is where I would love to, to work with these people. So speaking of that, because you've had such a varied career, we would love to know what your favorite memory or proudest moment of your career is. And we also have a small caveat. We were just curious, do you still hold your um, lawyer license in these roles that you do now? Or was there a point when, I, when you uh, let that go? I've maintained my um, practicing sets most of the time. So during that three-year stint or almost three-year stint, because three years used to matter a lot um, in your early call, when I worked in Nelson as an advocate and a victim assistance worker, I had non-practicing status. I was providing a lot of legal advocacy and teaching legal advocates and doing mostly like, you know, welfare rights and um, child protection work. I, then I wasn't, I was non-practicing. The whole time was at the um, the BC Law Institute and the Canadian Center for Elder Law. I maintained my 
practicing status. And we often would give advice to uh, governments and to our own organization. And I did also maintain part-time insurance when I was at the CCL because uh, quite a few times um, organizations would be developing public legal information tools related to elder law topics. And they would um, hire us they would usually approach me, can we hire you to review our legal information? And I would just take the work to the CCL and build them a nonprofit rate and um, give them, then I could give them legal advice and review their legal information tools. So I maintained that status the whole time I was at the Canadian Center for Elder Law. And then now that I'm at um, Vancouver Coastal Health, I'm insured as in-house counsel. So I have practicing status, but I'm like an in-house counsel. So my insurance um, isn't the same as if you were in private practice. And then along the way, you know, like if what I, one thing I did when I was um, at the Canadian Center for Elder Law early on is I tried to build up its brand. So like I developed a social media presence for it that eventually our we hired a comms person to take it over, but to try and build up the brand and the identity for the organization. As a result, that meant that people would kind of reach out if they had legal issues and need help. And most of the time I would send them to Seniors First BC or help them find a nonprofit. But, you know, I was definitely answering legal questions and helping people get access to legal assistance and explaining the law all the time. Like I did you know, another part of my work was I did presentations, you know, all the time, like panels, you know, you know, at least a few months, I was a few times a month, I was giving presentations about the law to a general public. So I was often explaining the law to people, even if I wasn't kind of in a more traditional lawyer role. So to me, maintaining that practicing status was really important. No, that's so neat. And I think that's like something that a lot of guests we've had on grapple with on when do you keep your practicing status? And, you know, it's a personal choice for everyone and things matter a little bit differently province to province. Um, I personally couldn't wait to retire my practicing status this past September. Um, and I did it the first possible day it was available to me. Um, but I understand that not everybody might feel the same way or have the same motivation. So that's really interesting to hear that you've primarily always kept it really active. Um, so that's, that's great. Um, Krista, we're really curious, you know, you have had these really unique roles and public service type roles in the legal profession and beyond. And we'd love to hear a little bit of your perspective on what you think needs to evolve within the legal profession. And obviously there are so many ways to answer this question. Um, but what might be most top of mind for you right now? You know, and I'll just preface that by saying one of the other things I've done throughout my career is maintain my Canadian Bar Association membership. And I think a lot of nonprofit lawyers don't do that. And it, it's actually not that expensive. And I've mostly found the organization I've worked for have been willing to pay my CBA fees, which has allowed me to be active within the CBA. Right now, I'm chair of the elder law section. Um, but I've, you know, also given talks over the years to the CBA BC. And I think like membership in the CBA is a lever point for helping to change the, the profession because there are a lot of changes that are needed. And that's kind of one of the ways that I've tried to stay involved is kind of being inside the profession a little bit because it's a culture. And it, sometimes when you give up your practicing status, 
and you're involved in CBA, you don't have the ear, the ear of the legal profession. And it's harder to change the legal profession when you're really not in it anymore. Like you are changing the culture by doing, doing your kind of fabulous things that you're doing and the relationship that you have. But it's a, the people deep in this, in the practice and CBA are almost like a culture within a culture, you know? So um, this, I have found that being a part of the CBA is, it's a lever for being involved in law reform through, you know, um, parliamentary committees, but it's also been a way that I can help, help kind of slowly shape the profession, you know, and speak out about issues. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I think is really important is how we, that piece about human resources and how we think about lawyers. And I am now in my very first law job where I don't, track my time in those six minute or half hour, quarter hour intervals, like even in the nonprofit sector, I was doing that every single day. And now I don't have to, it's so liberating to not have to track my time. I'm not less productive because of that, but it's removes the stress to not have and an admin burden. So I'm not to like keep files and track it, all that. Um, so I think I have, you know, how you feel about your non-practicing status is how I feel about <laughs> tracking my time for that non-profit or for-profit billable hour. But I think it's that billable hour is tied in how we think about people and their value. And people burn out so quickly in the legal profession, particularly women. You know, the day that I was, my last day at um, that trade union side labor law firm, I got a phone call from a more senior lawyer and he's saying, I'm just calling to congratulate you. It's five years since your call date and so many women leave the legal profession. So congratulations. And I was able to say, well, thank you, but it's my last day. I'm going non-practicing tomorrow. <laughs> so it was a weird coincidence, but I think women get pushed out for so many different reasons. And some of that is cultural and pressures put on us. And, you know, I think we need to change about how we think about the value of the people within our organization and how we reduce their value to the hours they spend. And are they thinking about a project that's work-related when they're going to the bathroom or like, we work so hard and burnout and it's a terrible role modeling for quality of life. Um, but we're whole people who, you know, need to take care of ourselves in and out of our work so that we can have like joyful lives. And that impacts our work. I think long term, if we're exhausting ourselves, we're eventually going to disappoint our employers and our colleagues anyway, because we burn out. So how do we kind of take care of ourselves kind of daily and across our career? How are we nurturing ourselves so that we can feel whole and, and emotionally healthy in our jobs and not kind of working at the peak of our cortisol levels, like all the time. Like, so I think there's work we can do, particularly as we get more senior in the profession to help shape and shift the culture. So we are treasuring the people that we work with and that report up to us. You know, I think that's, to me, I think that's like a big part of it. And, you know, um, that's one thing I appreciate about when I have staff who work with me that I have that opportunity to kind of think about what didn't work for me and how I can kind of do things differently so that I'm kind of supporting my staff. But then it's also part of us is a we 
kind of we play into a system with rules, you know, like the system only continues because we buy into it, right? Like we're complicit, all of us, if we're just, you know, working all weekend and just not taking care of ourselves. Like we harm ourselves, we harm others because we're part of that culture. So to me, I feel like living your life as a lawyer in a way where you're practicing like self-care is an act of resistance like every day but it's part of the system change you know so you know that's something I feel like the things that I do that are part of changing the legal system are the little things I do every day you know to make sure that I you know do my yoga and spend some time in nature and like prioritize my kid when she needs me and just not buy into the system. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think it's really great to hear that we have people like you in senior roles and in director roles um, who can sort of help shape and, you know, set the example because, you know, if someone is working for someone who's ED or boss or director or um, principal lawyer is, replying to them throughout the weekend or not taking time for themselves it really sets that example that it's not okay for you as a younger associate or a more recent associate or lawyer or person in a um, organization to take that time and take care of themselves too so it's so great to hear that um, you're able to do that for yourself and I think I would say that young lawyers have more power in this regard and they think they do. You know, we get told there's a certain kind of culture, but the truth is there's a shift happening and there's more lawyers are retiring. And there's so many jobs for like lawyers who have two or three years of call. And I think what we're looking for is amazing work. And like, I don't care how much time, I don't want you to do, I don't want you to take longer to do the work just so it looks like it was harder. I want sensational work. And if you can do that faster, and that means overall you're working less hours, the work is successful. I think that I think that other senior folks don't really care if you work 60 hours a week. They want, they want good quality work. So there's sometimes to some extent it's mythology. To some extent it is a culture you have to fight against, but to some extent it is mythology. And I think there's a lot of young people entering the practice now and there's power in numbers. And I have noticed in terms of our own hiring at the nonprofit that I was at previously that, you know, we, you know, for example, with the work from home, work from office, like we had to listen to what the next kind of generation of lawyers was saying about how they wanted to work because that was the pool we were dealing with from a hiring perspective. There weren't that many people who were willing to do anything to get the job anymore. So I do think that lawyers in your 20s, early 30s, you have more power than you think you do. That is a good reminder. Thank you so much, Krista. And um, we have so enjoyed having you on the podcast today and learning all about your different career paths and, and how you've gotten to where you are today. But we always like to end the podcast with the same question, which is, what is something new that you've learned recently? It's a really good question. Um, you know, I think we've talked about the alignment piece. So I would say is that what I've learned 
not just recently, but kind of more, more in recent years is that to some extent, the work is all about the people and the relationships you have with people, you know, like whether it's your kind of culture of practice, your community of practice, or how you treat people on a day-to-day basis, whether you have people to collaborate with and to reach out to when you have questions. Um, So much of it boils down to people. And and I say this as someone who's pretty introverted in a lot of ways. I love just hiding and writing, um, diving into a juicy problem, but still those relationships, the meaningful relationships that help lift me up and allow me to do that work, um, support me, the people that I can support, they're, they're everything. And, you know, when I had my last day in my, or my job at the Canadian Center for Elder Law, it was also the anniversary day for the, I think the 25th anniversary for the British Columbia Law Institute. So we had our first in-person event in a long time. And so many people came over to say thank you and goodbye, or let's work together next. But it was really nice to see people in person. But it, again, it really reminded me of that all of these people that I'd worked with over the years is what allowed our work to be successful. Like, hands down, like, there's no question in mind that Canadian, all the things that I'm really proud of in terms of the work we did at the Canadian Centre for Elder Law, we're collaborative on some level. So, yeah, the people and the relationships are everything. That's so true. And we couldn't agree more. And that's, you know, one of the reasons we love doing this podcast is Aaron and I always say, we always get to meet really interesting people doing really important work that we would have never otherwise had the opportunity to connect with. So thank you for coming, Krista, and sharing all of this knowledge with us today. And also, you know, all of your experiences just show that it's never too late to change your mind or change course, start something new, leave something new. Like, um, I think that that's a really important lesson, um, in life and in law. So thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time. We cannot wait to watch your career continue to evolve. Um, we know that it's just going to be, uh, continue to be so impactful and help so many people along the way. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for your questions and for reaching out to me and thanks for also what you do to kind of lift people up and connect us with each other. Cause I think that, um, you know, it's that, I say that relationship piece. It's like, so you need to connect people with other people and other women who can help them think about how to do their work differently. It's, you know, we're all part of this kind of community, you know, who are trying to do law differently. So thanks for sharing those stories. Of course, Krista, we're so grateful and we couldn't agree more. Thank you again. Thanks for joining us for this episode. To stay up to date with the podcast, follow us on Instagram at Off The Tracks Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite listening platform for a brand new episode of Off The Tracks Podcast every Tuesday. 